few weeks ago, a friend and I were discussing the future of the American economy. I told him that I expect asset price inflation and maybe even consumer price inflation to be a broad theme over the coming decades. There may be short bouts of deflationary pressure peppered in, but in general, my view is one of inflation going forward. After listening to my reasons, which include quantitative easing and increasing government debt, my friend asked the question, if those things cause inflation, why hasn't Japan seen inflation in nearly 30 years? They've done quantitative easing and have more debt to GDP than the United States. His question was so good that I decided to do an entire podcast about it. Back in the mid-1980s, the Japanese economy stagnated after the dollar was artificially depreciated against the yen as part of the Plaza Accord. To re-stimulate growth, the Japanese government implemented large stimulus packages and reduced interest rates to encourage borrowing. As we've discussed in previous episodes, a falling interest rate environment can drive up asset prices, which is exactly what happened in Japan. Real estate and stock prices soared, but by 1990, the expansion proved unsustainable and asset valuations fell sharply. Japanese asset prices never regained their former highs, despite substantial quantitative easing and other accommodative policies. So the question remains, why do I expect a general environment of inflation in the coming decades, even though it hasn't materialized in Japan? There are two primary reasons. One is the way that Japan chose to do quantitative easing, and the second reason is Japanese demographics. So we're going to use a new format today, and my wife Laura is going to ask me questions about this topic instead of me just monologuing about it. The hope is that the more conversational tone will make these topics more accessible and fun. So Laura, uh, can you say a little bit about yourself before we get into the interview? Hey, listeners, I'm making my podcast debut, which is, I guess, kind of exciting. Um, I'm Laura Darby Rose. I have a master's degree in economics. Matt and I actually met in our graduate program in economics. Uh, we've been married for about eight years. My economic interests include econometrics, and I especially like using the statistical programming language R to estimate models and do time series forecasting. Great. Thanks, Laura. So what questions do you have for me about the Japanese experience and how it's different than what we expect to see in the United States? So what was the Plaza Accord that you mentioned previously, and why was it implemented? It's a good question. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, the U.S. was facing stagflation, which is a combination of high inflation and high unemployment. In order to get that inflation under control, the Fed chairman at the time, Paul Volcker, allowed interest rates to rise, which encouraged saving over spending and reduced the money circulating in the American economy. It also put downward pressure on consumer prices. As a side note, the American debt to GDP ratio in the early 1980s was about 30%, which meant that the government could tolerate higher interest rates for a time without significantly impairing their, its ability to service its interest payments on the federal debt. Because of the monetary contraction, the dollar strengthened with respect to foreign currencies, particularly the Japanese yen. This made American goods relatively more expensive to foreigners, which reduced demand for American goods all over the world. By the mid-1980s, the federal government was under pressure from American exporters to rebalance the foreign exchange ratios, 
But at the same time, no one wanted to return to the inflation of a few years ago. The compromise that resulted was the Plaza Accord. In the autumn of 1985, monetary leaders from around the world, primarily Japan, met at the Plaza Hotel in New York. The agreement that they stipulated was that the Japanese would artificially strengthen the yen against the dollar and increase U.S. exports globally by doing so. So the central banks executed the policy by selling dollars on the foreign exchange market and buying yen. And the effect was very intense. By the end of 1986, the yen had actually appreciated against the dollar by 46%. 46% against the dollar, that's a lot. So we know by a few years later, in the late 1980s, Japan's asset prices were highly inflated. So why did that happen? When the Japanese appreciated the yen against the dollar, the international demand for their exports dried up and the Japanese economy slipped into a recession in 1986. Under pressure to stabilize the economy, the Bank of Japan gradually lowered interest rates in order to induce borrowing on the part of businesses to spur economic growth and encourage investment into capital projects. Lower interest rates make it easier for investors and consumers to borrow, which increases domestic demand to replace the export demand that was lost during the Plaza Accord. At the same time, there was a lot of financial deregulation in the early 1980s in Japan, which allowed Japanese companies access to credit directly from capital markets instead of depending solely on banks. So this combined interest rate and deregulation environment resulted in a massive increase in the amount of credit available in the Japanese economy. So credit expanded faster than the assets could be created, which bid up the price of the assets that already existed, this being both stocks and real estate. The most common anecdotal example from this time is that at the peak of the bubble in late 1989, the imperial residence was worth more in nominal terms than the entire state of California, which is staggering. So why did the Japanese bubble burst in the early 1990s? So by the late 80s, the Bank of Japan started to worry about all this excessive credit. It's worth noting that in the late 80s, both Brazil and Bolivia were in the middle of hyperinflations. And it's possible that the Bank of Japan was concerned that unless this credit growth slowed a little bit, consumer prices would eventually accelerate just as the asset prices had done, which would have been catastrophic and turned the Japanese economy into something like Bolivia at the time. So to slow the credit growth, the Bank of Japan increased interest rates in 1989 and 1990, which disencouraged borrowing. The money supply tightened as a result, and there were fewer yen chasing a relatively fixed number of assets, and the result was an asset price collapse in 1991. The asset price collapse of the early 90s was astonishing in its scale and speed, and the Bank of Japan changed direction almost immediately and began reducing interest rates again. But they were too late. The banking sector had been crushed when the asset bubble finally burst because the underlying collateral for their loans was sharply devalued. Balance sheets in the financial sector, as well as in business, areas had been crushed as well, make, making banks unwilling to lend to each other and, more importantly, businesses unwilling to borrow. So even when the Bank of Japan pushed interest rates down to zero and eventually negative, 
with the massive quantitative easing they would engage in after the year 2000. As they did this, it didn't matter because no one wanted to borrow because their balance sheets were actually insolvent. What is different about how Japan has done quantitative easing versus how the U.S. has done it? So before answering this question, we need to distinguish between the two types of money. There's the monetary base, which is currency created directly by the central bank. And then there's broad money, which is the monetary base created by the central banks, plus the credit created by the banking sector. So broad money is a wider measure of the total money supply in the economy. And that distinction will be important. So after the asset price collapse in the early 1990s, the Bank of Japan thought that they could lower interest rates to encourage borrowing. But even dropping the interest rates to zero didn't work because businesses didn't want to borrow. Why didn't they want to borrow? Well, during the asset run-up, the asset column on business balance sheets expanded rapidly, which allowed them to take on more liabilities, that being debt, to finance capital projects and things of that nature. But when those asset valuations collapsed, the liabilities remained the same. So corporations became balance sheet insolvent. So insolvency is when your assets are smaller than your liabilities. You can either be insolvent and cash flow negative or insolvent and cash flow positive. If your company is balance sheet insolvent and cash flow negative, that's it. You have to close. But if your company is insolvent and cash flow positive, it means you can use the cash flow to pay down debt and bring your balance sheet back into balance because borrowing more would just increase your liabilities on your balance sheet and increase your problem. So even at interest rates of zero, the net difference of paying down existing debt out of cash flow versus paying it down out of interest-free debt is a wash. So why even file the loan paperwork? So in short, in order to climb out of the economic slump, Japan needed its companies to borrow so that they could hire, invest in capital projects, grow their GDP, and so on. But companies were not going to borrow, no matter how low the interest rates were, because they were balance sheet insolvent. So in 2001, the Japanese implemented a form of quantitative easing in an effort to stimulate their economy after driving interest rates to zero in the late 90s failed. The way they did it was by purchasing securities from commercial banks with newly created money, which increased bank reserves and expanded the Bank of Japan's balance sheet and also expanded the monetary base. So the banks had more liquidity and a stronger reserve position, but they had almost no effect on business borrowing because non-banks were still balance sheet insolvent and weren't willing to borrow. So the monetary base increased but the broad money supply stayed relatively the same, and so did asset prices. Without new borrowing and capital investment, the Japanese economy continued to stagnate even though the Bank of Japan had printed a tremendous number of yen. The Federal Reserve in the United States watched this happen and they learned from it. So when the United States had its own asset collapse in 2008, the Fed acted decisively by implementing quantitative easing almost immediately instead of waiting years like the Japanese did. The Fed recognized the weakness of the Japanese model of quantitative easing in that it failed to improve the asset columns of business balance sheets, which were the key to borrowing and therefore the key to broad money growth, 
capital investment, and by extension, economic growth. So the Fed did buy some securities from commercial banks, just like the Japanese did, but they also bought securities from non-bank financial institutions like hedge funds and pension funds. So these non-bank financial institutions used this liquidity that they had received from the Fed to purchase assets. So this bid up asset prices and put upward pressure on the ability of these businesses to continue borrowing. So that continued borrowing drove up the broad money supply in the United States and led to a what was then a relatively strong recovery in the American economy. So what are the main demographic differences between the United States and Japan that you referenced earlier in the podcast episode? Uh, the main difference is that Japan's population is shrinking. Uh, so just to replace your existing population, the average birth rate needs to be about 2.1 births per woman. And Japan's birth rate has been below the replacement rate every year since 1974. And over the last 25 years, their birth rate per woman is only about 1.4. Japan is also very strict on immigration, which means they've decided not to make up the deficit by bringing in foreigners. By contrast, the United States has averaged about two births per woman over the last 25 years, which is just under the replacement rate, but it's still significantly higher than Japan's fertility rate. The United States has also seen a lot of immigration in the last few decades, so any slack in the domestic fertility rate has been more than made up for by immigration. So right now, the population of the United States is about 331 million, and by 2050, it's projected to be about 379 million. By contrast, Japan's current population is about 126 million, and by 2050, it's projected to be about 106 million. So in short, the U.S.'s population is going up, and Japan's population is going down. This matters because, all else the same, a declining population is deflationary, while an increasing population is inflationary, particularly for asset prices. So just to give a simple example, if you have a nation of 100 people that's 10 acres in size, you would expect the price of each acre to be higher than if you had only 80 people and the same 10 acres, all else the same. So demographic tailwinds are pushing Japan towards asset price deflation, while demographic tailwinds are pushing the United States towards asset price inflation, all else the same. That means that when we don't see Japan able to reinflate its asset prices, it's partially because they're fighting a prevailing deflationary tide due to their demographics. Uh, just breaking even on price level is almost a success for them. And that's certainly not the case for the United States. What is the general lesson we can take away from uh, the Japanese example of quantitative easing and asset price uh, deflation, quantitative easing, helping to mitigate that, but not really helping the economy not to stagnate. Uh, so the main lesson is that the United States learned from the Japanese example, and that's that you can't allow asset prices to collapse too far too fast or no amount of interest rate reduction will matter because corporate balance sheets will have been destroyed. Uh, secondarily, the United States learned how to do quantitative easing to perpetually drive asset prices higher, which strengthens balance sheets and encourages more borrowing. And that 
likewise encourages capital investment, which grows the economy and tax revenue, so on and so forth. So in a sense, ever since the Great Recession, we had a large run-up in asset prices punctuated by a sharp decline, uh, but our economy was almost completely dependent on these asset prices continuing to be inflated and moving higher perpetually. Uh, we've seen the highest level of corporate debt as a percent of GDP in the history of the United States. It's at about 47% right now. And the Federal Reserve knows this, and it knows that the only way to keep these corporate uh, balance sheets solvent is for them to continue to borrow money and to continue to have their asset columns um, run out ahead of their liabilities columns. And that means that they're going to have to continue quantitative easing well into the future and continue putting upward pressure on asset prices. Can you re-summarize your general view of where prices will go, that being asset prices especially, over the long term and what that means for investment choices today? Uh, it's really difficult to predict asset price behavior over any time period, but it's especially difficult to predict it over a short time period. I do see enormous inflationary pressures built up within the United States and an imperative to keep interest rates low and asset prices rising on the part of the Federal Reserve. I see huge upward pressure on asset prices in the long term and maybe even consumer prices eventually. Uh, an investor needs to come to his or her own conclusion, but if I'm correct and the theme over the next few decades is to be one of inflation, it would be wise to consider a general exiting of dollars over time and taking an equity position in assets, particularly an asset financed with fixed rate debt or floating rate debt with a cap. Uh, multifamily assets are an excellent example of this type of investment vehicle. And investing with a sponsor is a way to gain access to the multifamily market, which is otherwise fairly difficult to do, especially at scale. If our listeners want to learn more about how they can diversify into multifamily assets, what should they do? Well, the fastest way is to fill out the short contact us form on our website, darbyrosecapital.com. Uh, we can set up a call and see if investing in multifamily syndication is right for you. Uh, even if you're not necessarily interested in investing, but you just want to learn more about the space, I'm always happy to talk. Thanks, everyone. And we hope you'll join us for the next episode of Multifamily Economics with Matt Rose. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Multifamily Economics. If you did, please leave us a review on iTunes, which will increase our visibility and help us grow. If you'd like to discuss multifamily investing with me personally, please go to the contact us page on our website, darbyrosecapital.com. Thank you.